This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is a full-service digital marketing agency headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, that creates digital impact for your company. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. Hello and welcome to Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. It's our very first episode here at Guess That Record. This is the show where we talk music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I'm very excited about our guest this week. He's the man who since 1989 has helped many musicians, myself included, get a head start in the music industry through his company Foley Entertainment. His clients have earned 38 gold and platinum albums, as well as four Grammys. Some of these clients include Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, U2, and Bon Jovi. I'm very happy to welcome Eugene Foley to guess that record. Gene, how are you? Oh, Jackson, thanks for having me, and congratulations on your new podcast. I'm so excited to be on the first episode. Yeah. Now, uh, when I was writing up that introduction, uh, it dawned on me, what title do you like to refer yourself as? Because like, when I've told friends and family about the work we've done, uh, I've always referred to you as my manager, but is that what you would call yourself? Mostly agent. I'm really mostly, for most projects, I consider myself an agent. Some people, if it's more of the consulting end, they'll call me their consultant. Um, I have managed people uh, over the past, not in a long time, though, because it's, to do it right, it's really a 24-7 job. And uh, you know, now that the way the career is gone and with family and kids and things, I don't have the time to manage anymore to dedicate you know, 24-7 to one account. But uh, usually agent, you know, uh, is, is that kind of encompasses almost everything that I do for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those who don't know anything about you or uh, Foley Entertainment, maybe you could just give a little rundown of the, uh, the services you provide for musicians. Sure, sure. My pleasure. Yeah, so we started, like you said, 1989. And uh, it's a diverse list of things, you know, everything from uh, artist development, career guidance, publicity and marketing, uh, you know, shopping, uh, just putting deals together, you know, getting artists with managers and booking agents and record deals and publishing deals. Uh, we place, you know, tons and tons of songs every year into movies and TV shows. Uh, and then I have a division that I represent a lot of big record producers and engineers and mixers and session musicians where we've done close to 300 major label albums that our clients have either been the producer, the engineer, the mixer, you know, a hired gun guitarist, hired gun drummer, whatever it may be. So a lot of deal making and just putting good people together and uh, and letting them go do their thing, building teams. And then on the other side, uh, marketing and helping get, you know, up and coming all the way up to superstar level artists, get their stuff in front of consumers through press and radio and TV and Internet and social media and everything else. So that's kind of, you know, the, the, the one minute version of what we've been doing for 30 something years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so where am I talking to you from today? We are in Richmond, Virginia. Nice. How's the the weather there today? Not bad, not bad. It's not bad that it's we're still wearing shorts and golf shirts outside. A far cry from New Jersey, where I live most of my life. Where right now I'd already be in a winter jacket, probably. Yeah, yeah. We um we actually had snow in Calgary here over the weekend. Um, so it's coming, but uh, it's it's sort of melted again. But uh, yeah, it's definitely on its way up here. Um. And so, yeah, you're originally from New Jersey. Um, what made you go to Virginia? 
just, you know, New Jersey's starting to get very expensive to live with property taxes and we're getting tired of, you know, it's crowded, it's it's cold. I was really getting tired of the colder winters and stuff. So we kind of just started looking into other areas and we like the Carolinas and we just went up settling on Virginia. We like the area. It's uh, not that far. Like if I need to get back to New Jersey for family things, it's not that far from New York. I could be there in four and a half hours. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was just a good location. We're not going too, too far, but yet getting into a little more of a rural, quiet area. We're in the suburbs of Richmond out here, and it's uh, it's nice to get a lot of value for your dollar getting away from New York and New Jersey. That's for sure where it's, everything's so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to say it's nice to be able to just sit down and talk like this because um, – we've been working together now for like two years and I think we've really had like a casual conversation like this before. Uh, right. Right. Uh, Usually we just got to get on the phone and start making business decisions and career things. And it's nice sometimes just to have a social call. That's nice too. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, I, I guess I want to know, uh, what's the first record or the first song you remember hearing that like made you take music seriously? Um, Probably the Beatles. My parents had a lot of the Beatles 45s. And I remember playing those records and they had Elvis and Johnny Cash. And I remember listening to those different records and just really enjoying, you know, the uh, the songs. And then I went deeper into their collection and they had a lot of the 50s doo-wop bands and things that they bought back in the day. And uh, I would be listening to like Little Anthony and the Imperials and all the groups from that era and the beautiful harmony vocals and the amazing songwriting and I, I just, you know, between that and the Beatles, what a way to start. Elvis, you know, all those are just great songwriters, great songs, great musicianship. And that, that really uh, got it. And then when I was uh, in 1977, my older cousin took, took me uh, with his friends to see Kiss on the Love Gun tour. And uh, you walk in that place, you know, you know, as a grammar school kid, and it's all the fire and blood and smoke and music and you're like, wow, I want to be a part of this somehow. Like, you like you walk out of that place, you don't want to be a baseball player anymore. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. kiss in their heyday, you know? Yeah. And then uh, a couple of years after that, going to a Rush concert on the Moving Pictures tour uh, in New York and uh, seeing that level of musicianship of all three guys and... I just realized at that point I, I got to get involved with this as much as I like sports and other things. This is, you know, and so it started out for many years being in bands and things. And then it gets to a certain point where when you realize you're not going to be the next Eddie Van Halen, but how can I still stay in the business? And I realized I had a pretty good neck on the business side more so than I had as a, you know, some being some guitar shredder guy. So I just kind of segued into that side of the desk. And now I help people who really have talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I help them like achieve their dreams. I found my little niche as a part of the team. Yeah, and and you were mentioning that you uh, played in bands. Um, so, like, uh, how long did you spend as a musician? I did that probably from like a, I had actually a band that was actually pretty serious, even at a young age, at fourteen, and I did that all up till I was twenty-two. Okay. Yeah. Nice. We, I, the last band I had, we actually had an indie deal with a real legitimate label with distribution. Uh, they put us on tour. We did tour support. We had some endorsement deals with musical equipment companies and uh, had a nice little run. Got some good press, got some radio. Then like anything, you know, runs its course and uh, everyone realized it was time to move on, you know, with their lives. So I headed off to law school. The singer went off to, to, I think it was like a chiropractic school for medicine. And, you know, everyone just moved on with their lives. And it was a a good run, though. And it really helps me, though, I think, with my clients because I've been on their end of of, of the fence. I wrote songs. I dealt with clubs. I, you know, did touring in a crappy van with no money and no heat and no air conditioning. And, you know, 
all the things that I see them going through, I, I lived it on my own. And uh, I think I could really you know, empathize with their, their struggles and do what I can to help them avoid as many struggles as possible through, you know, you live, you learn, and you try to help people so they don't have to make some of those mistakes. Because in my day, there wasn't a lot of books. There wasn't the internet. You just had to go out and do stuff. And some things worked and some things didn't. And that was it. Nowadays, there's so many resources to help artists between books and videos and the internet and hiring professionals. And there's so many options that you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have like a lot of those uh, spinal tap moments anymore mm -hmm. if you do your homework. So uh, I just try to help people with that. So any work you're doing, any money you're spending, it's the most efficient route, you know, so you're just not doing a bunch of stuff just to fail. What was your band called? Uh, it was called Strike Two. Nice. Was, was one of them and then before that we had a, a band called cypress like the tree cypress and it was named after the street that the band uh, came came about on rehearsed on so it was yeah uh, we were trying to name and everyone was standing out on the porch one night and there was the street sign right there and we're like there it is no more arguing it's cypress <laughs> done and, yeah so yeah then you you sort of switched sides and got into like the business side of the industry um and what was so the moment for you was just to to have a more stable career, but stay involved with music. Right, exactly. It got to the point where I realized that I took the the you know the music end as far as it was going to take. I had to have that honest talk with myself. Um, so I did, and then I realized that well, I still have good skills here. I was always doing all the marketing and booking and everything else for my band, and and then you know when I went into law school, I realized wow, there's actually electives that I could take that cover contracts and entertainment law and intellectual property and hmm, I'm going to do this. And it kind of just came together where I just merged the academic background with, you know, my music passion and uh, life experiences. And the rest is history. And I've just been ever since then just helping other people, you know, reach their goals. Mm -hmm. it's, fun. It's, it's, it's really enjoyable to be a part of success. And, you know, when you hear a song or a demo that starts out, you know, it's a little demo that they send me and, you know, a year later it's on the radio or it's up for a Grammy nomination, or it's getting accolades. It's just great to, to see that ride with people, to see that you know you believe in someone, you work hard with them, and you watch them climb that ladder to every milestone until the ultimate, if it's awards, if it's a record deal, whatever their ultimate goal is when they get there. And you look at the person and say, wow, you know, it took two years of getting our butts kicked, but look, it worked. Mm -hmm. It's a great feeling. And even after all these years, that excitement has never gone away. You know, it's like I remember dialing people's phone number to tell them good news about their career and like my hands are almost shaking because i'm so excited i'm dialing you know and even after all these years you're so excited to say wow this phone call is something that both of us are going to remember for the rest of their lives hey the label said yes you got a record deal hey that tour you wanted they said yes you're going to open up for your favorite band of all time for the next 23 nights any whatever it is on a call knowing that that's something we're always going to remember both me and the artist uh it's just yeah Really, really great. And also being just a huge music fan, that's why I think the theme of your show uh, is just so cool because there's a lot of people out there who just love music. It's beyond just doing it for themselves. We're all fans. That's usually what got us all here in the first place. We love a certain artist or a band or whatever, and somehow the other it evolved into being more than just a fan, being mm -hmm. the artist or working in the industry or both. Um, so I'm excited. I think what you're doing is great, and I'm just really glad to be a part of it. This the first one. I remember... Uh... Uh, sort of going back to how you got started. I remember like in our first phone call uh, when we uh, started working together, you mentioned that Bon Jovi sort of helped you um, get your start 
uh, with Foley Entertainment. So how did that come together? Yeah, you know, I went to certain bands in the area that were like up and coming. Like they were our local Jersey bands where they had deals. And I went to different bands like Bon Jovi and Queensryche and a couple of the other hair bands from that era. And I said, listen, I'll volunteer different services for the band, for their fan club, whatever it is that they needed help with. And I'll do some PR, marketing, giving out flyers, whatever I have to for free just to get some experience and build a resume. And, and that kind of got my foot in the door. And then, you know, when, when up and coming bands would hear that, Oh, you helped this band, you helped that band, you know, uh, it just kind of opened up doors and the rest, the rest was history. You've told me some awesome stories about getting to meet really cool people uh, in the industry. And probably my favorite one was when you told me how you met Bruce Springsteen at a Starbucks. Uh, and I, I like that one cause I'm a huge Springsteen fan. Uh, he's been such a huge inspiration for me. Uh, so what happened with that one? He actually met Bruce three times before we ever did any kind of business stuff. I met him at a PetSmart uh, pet supply store. Had a nice conversation. Just We were both in there shopping. And there's Bruce Springsteen back when we lived at the Jersey Shore for many years. Uh, so I'm at a Starbucks, same thing, conversation. But the, probably the coolest one was I was at a Bob Dylan concert uh, backstage watching the show from the side of the stage and um just standing there the lights were down obviously in the back and i'm watching this concert and a guy comes up and is standing next to me uh i didn't really look at look sideways i was in and we, you know he's watching the show and for a couple of songs like man great show great show i'm like yeah absolutely and you know a little small talk again not really looking then i'm like god this voice i know this voice i turn around and there's bruce springsteen and uh you know and, and it's like wow we meet again and we you know had a little running joke how I keep bumping into him at all these places around Monmouth County. Um, and then, you know, as the years went on, you know, being involved with helping him. Like, you know, we've had clients now that have played on his albums, who've been, uh, you know, guest musicians on tour, guest musicians in the studio, uh, remixing songs, um, guitar techs, uh, you know, stuff when he did some of that blues, the blues stuff with the Bon Jovi guys handling the PR and the radio. And so our pants have crossed many times, you know, since then. But uh, talk about a strange thing like you're watching a show and all of a sudden you're like you look and you do that double take you know mm-hmm. and i was he was there to watch this the dylan show as well obviously they sent him backstage so we could watch it without being you know mobbed by fans and uh and there he was so we watched the uh a bob dylan concert standing there and making some chatting here and there so yeah cool story and that was a long time ago that was in the late 90s i believe i uh i i liked when you were telling me how you you had like a a business deal with him and you talked it over at Starbucks, and uh, I, I like that because um, you know you'd think like when you meet a big star like Bruce, it would be in like a boardroom or a fancy restaurant, but he's just like, let's meet at Starbucks. And, and there were some big shots on the call through uh, through like speaker phones at the table. There were uh. phones on the table and speakers. So yeah, you just get the job done. And I, I think artists like that, there's certain artists in this world that. They're so smart in business and they're so involved in their own careers. That's why they've had 30 and 40 year careers. Guys like Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen and so many others that have done that. They, they're just very involved in their career, not only the creative end, but the business end. And they're really smart and they're really you know, hard workers and they've never lost that hunger. You know, 30, mm-hmm. 40 years into a career, they're still a part of the decision making process on everything of their career. So I think that's a lesson learned for up and coming artists that, or because you make a few dollars, just don't start trusting everyone to, to do everything. You, you For have sure. To stay involved to make sure that things are going the way you want them to go. It's your vision. You're the artist. 
Now, have you ever been uh, starstruck meeting someone? Probably the only time was uh, when Ahmet Erdogan, the founder of Atlantic Records, passed away. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I got, you know, unfortunately he passed away, but I got invited to his memorial service. And that night was amazing, the people that I got to meet and chat with that night, um, because tons of famous artists that were either on Atlantic at the time or at some point in their career, they all came to this event to pay their respects to Mr. Erdogan. Uh, some performed, some just hung out. And, you know, that night it was amazing bumping into, you know, the three surviving members of Led Zeppelin and having a conversation with them and Mick Jagger and, um, uh, you know, the, some of the guys from the hair bands, like the, the different, like Dee Snyder, Twisted Sister and different people. Like it was amazing that people, Bette Midler, uh, Stevie Nicks, all these amazing people that, you know, just everyone's just mingling around and giving and chatting and, I remember driving home that night and I'd met a lot of people over the years between the Grammy Awards events and record company events and all the major label artists we've done stuff for. But that night I remember driving home thinking, wow, I was just gabbing and shaking hands with Mick Jagger and the three guys of Led Zeppelin, you know, <laughs> that one really was one of those nights like, wow, like that was awesome. You know, they were uh, super nice, all of them. And uh, um, I remember telling Mick, he had this really, really nice suit on with sneakers and it looked so cool. And I remember telling him, I said, Mr. Jaggy, he's like, I call me Mick. I was like, I said, I could never pull that off. I could never look cool wearing sneakers with a suit. I said, but you just do it. You just are so cool. He's like, oh, try it, man. Try it. You'll be fine. Like, he was <laughs> totally cool. And, we, you know, we had a laugh. And, um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a great moment. I have to say that, like, I wish I met you earlier in my career. Um, because, like, you, you've probably been the biggest reason for me wanting to keep pursuing music and try and make something out of this. Um, you know, the, the industry is filled with pretty scummy people. And I was involved with this management company in Canada who like promoted with big quotation marks, my music. And, uh, and that company was, it, it was nothing but scummy people. And, uh, and I was with them for a long time because I felt like, man, I don't know anyone else. And, um, it really felt like I was crashing into a dead end when I met you. Um, and uh, it was such a huge moment to hear back from you because, um, you know, like I'm not really used to getting responses back from people in the industry. It's a, like music is an industry of rejection a lot of the time. And it, it was like crazy to have someone who, you know, has your connections say like, oh, I love your song. Let's let's work together. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, what's been awesome is you're, you're very positive, very transparent. You have the ability to do great things for people. And, you know, you work with the Springsteens and the U2s of the world, but you'll also work with people like me who are trying to make a name for themselves. And, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's a very long buildup, but I want to know, like, what advice can you give people who were in my situation uh, where I was feeling a bit hopeless about my career. Right, right. Well, first, thank you for those kind words. I appreciate it. I mean, from the first time we talked, I just had a great feeling. You're very, very smart, very, very, you know, hungry to learn. You wanted to learn. You wanted to be coached. Um, you had the talent. You had the work ethic. Uh, and like you said, you were just in a dead end that you need to get out of. And I'm glad that I was able to kind of steer you out of that. And if you think how far you've come, both in accomplishments and the, the, the development of your songs and now you have a new song with the legendary Kenny Aronoff, who I introduced you to, is now playing drums on your on your new single. And 
I'm so proud of you, you know, just watching how far you've come just in our two years together. And, and again, that's why I enjoy doing it. You know, I like to have that balance of doing the big name artists and then also helping the next generation. I, I love to balance my time like that. Um, I think some of the bigger things, people who are listening to this or up and coming musicians, and it sounds obvious, but it's obviously not happening enough. Uh, so it has to be repeated is having great songs. Too many people rush through the songwriting process to say, oh, I have 200 songs. I have 300 songs. Well, that's fine. I'd rather you have 10 that are great than 300 that are not. You know, it's, it's about great songwriting. And whatever your style is, in any style of music, you need to go to the charts, see other artists that are in your style of music who are on the Billboard charts and the Spotify charts and iTunes charts, and get an idea what's happening right now. What's the song arrangements? What's the... What's the sound? What's the direction of what they're doing? Just to have some guidance to take your material and at least steer it in the right direction. Because if you try to be too much of a maverick, too much of a renegade, you're just not going to get anywhere. Because at this point, like it or not, press people, radio, music industry executives, they need to have a label for projects. They have to know, well, do we send this to jazz radio? Do we send this to blues? Do we send it to rap? Whatever it is. When people try to be all over the place, it just... People listen to it and say, wow, that's really good. That's really artsy. Next, because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what box to put it in. And if you just want to be an artist and do it for self-enjoyment, then that's all. You can do a 10-minute cover song of a nursery rhyme. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But if you want to really make a living, you need to sound like the songs on the radio in your style of music. Otherwise, uh, you're just really just spinning your wheels and wasting your time, and it will never be more than a bar band. Um, so you take somebody like you who you get that. So you do your homework, you do your research, you line yourself with the right people, and your songwriting has gone up so high in your production just since we've met. Uh, that's what people should aspire to, is like getting songs, doing your, that's the main thing. Then once you have that, you know, getting the other materials professional, make sure you have a nice video, make sure all your social media pages and your website look professional and are, are properly run so it doesn't look like a nine-year-old doing it. You know, have positive engagement with fans on social media. Work on a live show. You have to be able to play great because if people are impressed with your music and your live show is weak, that's where the you know your 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 journey will end. You can't have that type of weakness. You got to make sure you can perform, and that's the thing now with more and more clubs going out of business. There's far and far less places for artists to play, so we're going to be seeing unfortunately a whole generation coming soon of of kids who are maybe teens now. Well, when they're 18 to 25 in a few years, how much live experience will they have to become great performers? Because there's just not the, the outlets for them that, that people of older generations have had that luxury of. So that concerns me. Uh, you know, you see certain great performers, they say a Prince or Bruce Springsteen or some of the other names that are known for their live show. They had the ability when they were young to, to cultivate that over many years, playing clubs and colleges and corporate events and private parties and I don't know how much of that is left for the for the 15 year old right now by the time they're 18 or 20 or 21 so um we'll see maybe there'll be other ways but for now great songs great marketing materials and a great live show if you can get all three of those you're headed in the right direction uh thank you for for the nice words about my music uh it uh, it means a lot and um and yeah, like it's really special getting to work with you because we can, you know, like we got Kenny Aronoff to play on my song and it's like, how would I get the chance to do that like any other time? So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's really, uh, 
a special uh, relationship, and uh, I hope we can take it further. Uh, before we move into like the main part of the podcast here, I'd figured um, I'd end it with a, a segment here that I, I developed some some questions here, and I'm calling this the record personality test. They're just kind of like the first thing that comes to your head here you, is what you can answer. Um, so what album have you been listening to the most lately? Lately, probably uh, the original Boston album. For some reason, I've been on this Boston kick lately. And the original one with More Than a Feeling and all those songs, I've been playing that a lot. Uh, that's been my latest kick. Yeah, that's you, you can't go wrong with that one. <laughs> What's an album that when you listen to it, you need to wear headphones and get lost in the music? Probably Van Halen 1. What's an album that, in your opinion, is all killer, no filler? Probably the Gin Blossoms album, the one that really broke them, that came out in like the early 90s. I can't think of the title of the album, but it had Allison Road and uh, you know all those big hits, Hey Jealousy. That album is, from start to finish, every single song on that song, album's a hit. Uh, the other one would be Alanis Morissette's big album uh, that came out in the late, mid to late 90s. That one, same thing. Well, that had having had seven, eight, nine singles, wherever it was. That album is another one. Every single song is great on that album. So you're on a cross country road trip. What's an album you need to take with you? Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet would be one, and pretty much anything by Led Zeppelin or Rush. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, name it. Yeah, <laughs> Moving uh, Pictures by Rush. I guess if I had to pick one. What's a good album to play when you're on a first date? First date, hmm. anything by Prince. He's he always a Brings a little romantic, sexy vibe to a to a meeting. And um, lastly, here, what's an album you've played so much that you can't listen to it anymore? Probably Kiss Love Gun. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. That's the record personality test. <laughs> I wanted to do. I wanted to do something um, that was sort of uh, like uh, inside the actor studio. How the he asks the same questions at the end of each interview. That was sort of what I was going for with that. Yeah. Uh, all right, Gene. So it's time we enter the guessing portion of this podcast. Um, so before we begin, I'll go over the rules for both you and the audience. Um, so I have a bag here for those that are listening. And inside this bag is the record that I have pulled from my collection of nearly 400 albums. Um, so I'll be giving you three clues about this album and uh, so to try and help you get in the right direction. Uh, then you get to ask me up to 15 yes or no questions to try and figure out which album I picked. Uh, as a helpful tip, probably better to save the questions asking if it's a specific album until the end, once you've sort of like gathered enough clues. Uh, you're more than welcome to say, uh, is it Rumors by Fleetwood Mac right out of the gate? Uh, but if all your questions are like that, you might run out. So, all right. Gene, are you ready to guess that record? Yes, I'm ready to guess that record. Let's play ball. All right. Here are your three clues. The first one, this record came out in the 1980s. It reached the top 10 of the Billboard 200 and went platinum. The third clue, the artists behind this record made a major change to their sound prior to recording this album. All right, so question one. Is the artist based, is it an American artist? No. 
Question two. Uh, is it someone from England? No. Oh, Question three. All right, let me guess Canada? Yes. Okay, so we know it's a Canadian artist, and it went to, it was in the top ten. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other clues again? Uh, so it came out in the 80s, reached the top ten, and went platinum. And uh, the artist made a major change to their sound uh, prior to the recording of the album. Question four. Was the singer like the focal point of the group? Mm, no, I'd say it was uh, they're an equal collaboration. Question five. I'm trying to think, I have a name in mind, but I just lost it. Uh, oh, could it? Could I say? Could it be Loverboy? It's not Loverboy. <laughs> <laughs> Question six. Could it be the Matthew Good Band? It's not that. Hmm. Gosh, I can't think of anyone from Canada. I don't know what else. What else can we do? To... Uh, well, I'll I'll tell you that um, uh, we we have mentioned this band already. Okay, that's a good, that's a good thing. Question seven. I mean, could it have been Rush? It is Rush. Oh, okay. So now, which which record from Rush? Question eight. Could it be Grace Under Pressure? Gene, congratulations. It was Grace Under Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there we go. That yeah. was a bit. One of my favorite Rush albums, and uh, I've always enjoyed it, uh, but I feel like in the last um, year or so, it's it sort of become like, it's really climbing the list of like my favorite Rush albums. Um, and uh, before we get more into the discussion about the album, I'll just have a few uh, quick facts here. Uh, for the listeners, courtesy of Wikipedia, just in case you're uh, unfamiliar with the work. But uh, Grace Under Pressure was released in 1984. Um, the album is notable in the Rush catalog for not being produced by Terry Brown, which ended a collaboration between the band and the producer that went all the way back to Fly By Night in 1975. What are you saying? Peter, Peter Henderson, I believe, did this mm -hmm. album? Is that right? Yeah. And that that was the third clue there. That was the major change that they made. If I yeah, I should, that would have definitely I would have gotten it quicker because that's the only album I, I'm aware of that I know that he's done. I'm sure mm -hmm. he's done many others. That's the only one I know. Yeah. So yes, Peter Henderson produced, and it continued uh, a move that the band made with Signals in 1982, which placed more of an emphasis on keyboards and synthesizers. Uh, the album reached number four in Canada, number 10 in the U.S., and it went platinum in both countries. And it was also the last album Rush recorded at Lay Studio in Morin Heights, Quebec, until 1989's Presto. Uh, and Lay Studio had been their main recording space for quite a few years. They had recorded every album from Permanent Waves to Grace Under Pressure at that studio. Um, and Alex Lifeson said in a 1984 interview that he thought that Grace Under Pressure was the most satisfying of all our records. So, yeah, do you have any memories of this album coming out? Well, I always liked that song, Red Sector A. I always enjoyed that one. And uh, in my original hometown of Bayonne, New Jersey, there was a, a, a local band that all the band members really were huge Rush fans. They're really talented guys. And they actually named their band Red Sector A, and they uh, they had a couple albums out and and, and stuff. And um, 
as soon as I heard the band name, I'm like, I bet before I even read their bio, I'm like, I bet I know who they like. Yeah. And, uh, and they did a great job. I, you know, they, they were fantastic musicians and definitely tipped their hat nicely to, to Rush. So that was great. And, you know, and even like Red, Red Lenses, that's always a song I think that's underrated. That's a great song that I think should have been, you know, bigger than it was just amongst the Rush fans, you know. And of course, Distant Early Warning, that was the, the big hit of the album. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was a that was a big one. So th- there's quite a divide in the Rush community between uh, people who like the '80s era and then those who despise it and like their sort of more guitar-driven work. Uh, personally, I love both. Uh, I love that Rush has such a di- diverse catalog where you can have like the '70s hard rock and then sort of the more new wavy stuff from the '80s. Uh, which era of Rush do you prefer? I, I, I agree. As a fan, I do like them all. There was never any other albums that I was turned off by. If I had to pick one or the other, I would. I like the stuff that was more guitar-driven, even like you know, Fly by Night and Working Man and some of those songs, you know. But but even when they went on this little experimental stuff with the extra keyboards and things, I I went right along with it. I was still enjoying it. And to me, I, I understood as an artist, those guys were so talented. They had to reach and, and expand their their reach further. So it was still rock at the end of the day. Uh, the Signals album, that came out, I was still in high school, and that came out, and uh, another great album. I mean, that's one that we can almost say from when we did the Q&A earlier, that's one where every single song on that record is great. And uh, I th- this um, album that I just pulled out of the bag is technically the first Rush album that was in my collection, uh, which I, I got from my dad, because my dad's, he kept all of his records and just sort of passed them on to me. And that was sort of how I like, that was my starter pack, I guess. Um, but he didn't even know he had that album, which is sort of funny. I, I guess um, a friend or something must've lent it to him being like, Oh, Hey, this is a really good album. And then he, he didn't really take to any of the songs and it just ended up in the pile. And uh, so it, it's a very, it's that, that specific copy I have is in very good shape. Um, so yeah, if we go through like track by track here, uh, we got, it starts off with distant early warning, which is, uh, one of the more uh, well-known songs from the album. And it really sets the tone thematically. It's one of Rush's darker albums. Um, then we have after image, which I, uh, personally was, uh, that was the one song that I went to right after Neil Peart died because that's what the song is all about is like remembering someone you knew who uh who passed on it sort of was like uh very um timely i guess when when neil passed away last year uh red sector a is interesting because when they played it live getty actually didn't play bass he just played keyboards on it uh so if you watch footage of them playing that song live it's just keyboards and then i think uh, there's like a, a bass track or something going throughout the song. Um, and it, it, it's also an interesting song um, in its lyrical content because it's actually uh, about the Holocaust. Uh, Get, Getty Lee's parents were Holocaust survivors. Right, that's right. I remember seeing that in an interview with him that he did with uh, CBS. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he talked about that, yeah. Yeah. Um, then you have uh, The Enemy Within, yeah, that song I find interesting because it uh, it's really uh, shows how Rush had a huge 
influence from the police in the early 80s there. I feel like that's that's a song that the police could have done. And it's really it's really interesting. I don't think there was a band that had a bigger influence on Rush at that time period than the police. Uh, then the body electric, which is a uh, quite a cool song. I always liked the sound of it, and it has a, a story about a like a robot that gains consciousness or something. Um, so that one's cool. Then we have kid gloves, and this is I think this is one of Rush's most underrated songs of all time, um, and it was one I never really paid attention to until this last year. Uh, which is kind of weird. Like sometimes I'll listen to an album and I'll like some songs just won't even, I won't even pick up on until much later. And I'm like, how did I miss this song? This is great. And that was Kid Gloves. And um, it's uh, when I look at what it's about, it's like, um, you know, it's uh, like handling situations delicately when things are going crazy, uh, I think is what the song's about. And it really takes me back to my high school days when I was really getting into Rush. Um, you know, I I didn't really, especially towards the end of like grade 12, uh, I was usually like on my own. I didn't really have a lot of friends left, uh, but it was music that, that uh, was like, you know, what kept me sane. So like listening to Rush and The Who and Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and... Uh, you know, that, that was sort of what just kept me going. And it, it's really, uh, even though I wasn't really listening to Kid Gloves at the time, you know, it's it, it takes me back because it reminds me of songs like Subdivisions and Middletown Dreams. And, uh, you know, the, the, the I always think about the video of Subdivisions where the kids, you know, that, that nerdy kid in the high school, uh, that's kind of what I was like at that time. I was just like, you know, all on my own in a high school that looked exactly like the one in that video. So yeah, and the other thing about Kid Gloves that I really like is I think it's one of Alex Lifeson's most underrated guitar uh, pieces in the whole Rush catalog. The I learned how to play it, and the solo is so fun to play. And you, you'd never... It's one that never really gets talked about that much. So um, yeah, I like that one. Then, uh, then you, as you mentioned, Red Lenses... Which was interesting about Red Lenses, that was in C sharp minor, which was not a a, a key uh, or whatever that they used too much of. You know, mm-hmm. so that was interesting. I don't know why they did that, but and then the other thing with that song, I remember with the lyrics, uh, and you could look that up later. You actually have the record there, which I had back in the day. I don't even know where mine is, but I have it on, on CD now. Um, but the liner notes, the lyrics for that particular song are all in lowercase letters for some reason. I don't mm-hmm. know the story behind that. I guess you could research that. But for some reason, that song, there's no capital letters in Red Lens's lyrics. It it has, um, I always sort of thought it had a bit of a like a jazzy feel to to it compared to the rest of the album. Um, but then uh, the final track is uh, Between the Wheels. And I always liked Between the Wheels. Um, and the, the cool thing is that when I saw Rush, the only Rush concert I've been to, which was on their final tour at the Saddle Dome in Calgary, um, they, uh, they played that song and I thought that was really cool. Cause it's like, you know, it's, it's a bit of a deep cut for Rush. And, uh, so it was really cool to, to hear it live, uh, at my only Rush concert. And I have to say sort of a overall view of Grace Under Pressure when I look at their 80s albums, 
I think that this record was sort of the perfect balance between the keyboards and the guitar. Um, the, the guitar isn't really buried in the mix like it is on Signals or Power Windows. And on quite a few songs, especially like Kid Gloves, uh, it's totally the driving force of the song. Uh, so I, th I think the mix has a really good balance and, and it's sort of one of the only 80s albums where they, I think, had a good a good balance between all the different parts that they had going on. Right. And even the artwork on the front cover, it almost looks like a beautiful painting. It's really, really great artwork. Mm -hmm. uh, another reason why I've sort of been getting more into the 80s Rush camp um, is that they... Uh, they started to take things more seriously, I think, in the 80s. Like, I, I, I love everything they did in the 70s, you know, even when they're singing about talking trees and aliens and snow dogs and, and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But um, starting with uh, Permanent Waves, I feel like the band started to talk more about, like, real-world problems and, and scenarios. Uh, yeah, it just, it just has a bit more emotion to it, and... Uh, Grace Under Pressure is probably their darkest album uh, in terms of the lyrical contents, but I think that's what gives it its impact. Right, right. Matter of fact, you know, they didn't use Terry Brown on that album. In the liner notes, they give him a little shout out mm -hmm. uh, in French, of all things. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they wrote it in French, and it says something like, you'll always be our good friend or something of that nature. Um, and a lot of people didn't didn't know like what that was about, but it was you know they're just a little respectful nod. You know they decided to go with someone else, but Terry they still viewed as a friend. You know. And um, for anyone uh, that's interested, I know on YouTube, I I once just sort of came across this video, but there is a like a bootleg recording uh, in 1983, so about a year before the album came out. They did a run of shows at Radio City in New York. And um, at that show, they they were basically using it to sort of test out the new songs and work on the arrangements before they went to record them. And they're playing songs like Kid Gloves and, and all these songs that ended up on Grace Under Pressure, but they're, they're different arrangements. So if you're interested to sort of see how the, uh, how the album uh, came to be, you can go look that up on YouTube. Very cool. Yeah, that's very interesting. There's even some things online... Where they'll have like isolated tracks you mm -hmm. can hear from a Rush song, just the drums or just the bass, just the guitar. And those are even fascinating if you're really a hardcore fan, just hearing the drums of Tom Sawyer or something, like all the stuff going on that when all the other instruments are, are out of the mix, you're hearing just that, just to hear how in intricate those drum parts are. Oh, yeah, no. I uh, I definitely, once I got into Rush and started playing their songs on guitar, that, that was a big uh, jump in my skill level. Uh, so, and I still go back and play, you know, I'll, uh, one that I always try to go back to every now and then is like, uh, La Villa Strangato, cause it's, uh, yeah, it's a workout on the, uh, it's a workout on any instrument. If you want to get good playing your instrument, just play Rush. <laughs> exactly. That's true. Those guys could play and, uh, just had a huge influence on me as a musician and, you know, as a business person and wanting to be involved with the career, you know, they just, you just want to. It's a shame I never got to work with them in any capacity. That really would have been a, a you know a real dream come true type moment. But uh, you know, you never know. Hopefully, maybe Getty and, and Alex will still uh, you know do some music under even if it's under solo names or something. Well, I I know Alex is he's been putting out songs that he's been doing. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're always, they'll always have like, you know, special edition records to put out and promote. So, yeah. Well, we've reached the end of Guess That Record. So uh, thanks again to Eugene Foley for coming on to this first episode. Uh, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I, I don't have enough conversations about music in my day-to-day life. And uh, so, you know, I, I that's one thing I want to change with this podcast is just to be able to talk music with, with cool people who have uh, cool things to say. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you for having me. And I love the idea of your show. I think people, both industry people you have as guests as well as the listeners will really enjoy this. I know I enjoyed this very much. It definitely makes you think, you know, about albums and some of the albums we talked about today. I might not have thought about, about that in a long time. So just it, it gets me thinking mm-hmm. and uh, of, of great music. And listen, that's why we're all here. We love great songs. We love our favorite artists. And um yeah, definitely enjoyed this opportunity. So thank you, and uh, I look forward to hearing other episodes as they start posting. Yeah, and uh, well, uh, so I think you figured out what record it was in I think eight questions. So that's that's the record now. Because <laughs> I'm, you know, all these big music credentials. If I didn't get it, that would have looked bad. So I'm glad I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for coming on. Thank you to the listeners. Uh, we're just getting started with this podcast, so make sure you follow us on Instagram. Uh, which is at guess that record. Uh, so give us a like and a follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, remember to keep rocking, and we'll see you next time. Bye.